0: Okay, people? I'm going to start by, uh, looking at, by reading Psalm 31. So I invite you to listen to it and see what it says to you. Psalm 31. In you, Yahweh, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, Yahweh, faithful God. You hate those who pay regard to worthless idols... But I trust in Yahweh. I will exult and rejoice in your steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction. You have taken heed of my adversities. And have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me Yahweh. For I am in distress. My eye wastes away from grief. My soul and body also. For my life is spent with sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails because of my misery. My bones waste away. I am the scorn of all my adversaries, a horror to my neighbours, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have passed out of mind like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror all around, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, Yahweh. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Do not let me be put to shame, Yahweh, for I call on you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go dumbfounded to Sheol. Let the lying lips be stilled that speak insolently against the righteous with pride and contempt. How abundant is your goodness that you have laid up for those who fear you and accomplished for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of everyone. In the shelter of your presence you you hide them from human plots. You hold them safe under your shelter from contentious tongues. Blessed be Yahweh, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was beset as a city under siege, I said in my alarm, I am driven far from your sight. But you heard my supplication when I cried out to you for help. Love Yahweh, all you his saints. Yahweh preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts heartily. Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for Yahweh. Anything about that that comes home to you? That's interesting, because it, it fits with, I mean, another bit of, my, of our kind of way of thinking is how important is story, is narrative. Um, and it's assuming that the relationship between God and us is part of a story, part of a narrative. It's part of my story in the past and part of the people of God's story. So I can work in dialogue with that. Um, and it's and the story is going to continue. Some other things are going to happen. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm? Really drawn to verse 8 where it says, you've not given me into the hands of my enemies, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Because I think it contrasts so much with what we just did in Psalm 88, where God is the one who, who did those things. And so, you know, I'm just not really... Not only does good things in our life, but also is responsible for bad things in our life, and um, that doesn't seem to be an issue for the psalmists. That's yeah, that's a great way to put it. The, bo- the both Psalm thirty-one is in the Psalter, and Psalm eighty-eight is also in the Psalter, uh, and and they can live with that. We are more comfortable with that point in Psalm 30, thirty-one that you're referring, that you're drawing attention to, than with. Uh, yeah, we don't feel very comfortable with the kind of talk in some way, too. Yeah. I was just going to say that waiting to the something is dead time. It's not kind of, it's not kind of just time to pass in order for something better to come. There's actually an active point to it in the whole scheme of things. So you know, to take courage, something to focus on, something to do. It's not just you know clock watching, waiting for the day hmm. to arrive. Hmm. And that fits with that. Think about narrative, doesn't it? It's um, yeah. Here I am now, but it but it's um, I'm I'm expecting something that's going to be different. Yeah. We we use the expression when we think about waiting on the Lord. It's rather kind of um, it's not really narrative. It's not really linear. Uh, it's I don't know. But wait, waiting for the Lord, I think is different from waiting on the Lord. And it's waiting for the Lord that the uh, the Psalms talk about. Yeah. What's the difference? Well, waiting on the Lord... Is praying... I think, I think if I use that phrase... I mean... I'm... Hoping that the Lord is going to speak to me or... Give me a sense of his being there or something like that, aren't I? Um, uh, whereas waiting for the Lord... Is expecting that God is going to do something, kind of out there, in in um, in in experience, something like that. Is that does that is that how you'd use the words? That's I think that was what I would mean by them. Mm-hmm. I'm actually fascinated by the beginning idea in the of how God will protect me from shame, because most of the time in our society we look at things through the Lens of guilt as a, sort of the judicial system where we did a wrong deed and we do another deed to fix that action. But shame is actually more focused on the relationship between two individuals. And the or with the community. Of, or the community. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of Hesed as a, mm. as sort of the alleviation of shame because it's the mm. unwavering love between mm. a, an individual. So. Mm. That's nice. I hadn't thought about the relationship between chesed, steadfast love, and shame. If you're uh, in a chesed relationship with people, that's the opposite to being in a shame relationship with people. That's a neat point here. Okay, let's sing um, As the Deer Pants for the Water, which is based on Psalm 42, that um, we may have reason to quote sometime, but you can... Uh, see how some of the language of the kind of things that's finding expression in Psalm 31 also appears uh, in Psalm 42 and in the way in which um, this song uh, works with it. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart desire, and I long to worship you. You alone are my strength, my shield, to you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. You're my friend, and you are my brother, even though you are a king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. You alone are my strength, my shield, to you alone. Spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship you. Gracious God, some of us are in a position where we need to cry out to you and ask you to come and intervene in our lives and we ask you to meet with us where we are. Some of us can remember when you've done that and can rejoice in your presence with us now. And We thank you for that. We pray that as we study the Psalms together, you may draw us more into the kind of relationship with you that the guys who wrote these Psalms had. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at the kind of uh, psalms that you've looked at one or two, uh, looked at one or two examples of uh, in looking, for instance, at um, Psalms uh, 22 and 89 uh, and 88 for today and the kind of psalms that Brueggemann talks about in his Costly Loss of Lament uh, paper. And I'm going to um, start uh, by looking, in fact, at um, Psalm 42, which I just referred to. And seeing how that illustrates the, the nature of one of these psalms of protest or lament. Um, <coughs> so you'll see it says at the top of that page, which is page 57. It, it, this is about how to pray for ourselves, as I assume is the reason why these psalms are there uh, in the book of psalms. Um, they're psalms of protest, is the title I give them. They're usually referred to as psalms of lament. Um, because lamenting the situation you're in is a dominant feature uh, of the psalms, but it's not their total nature. Um, And psalms of protest maybe comes nearer to it, uh, but they are simply, if you like, prayer psalms. They're the equivalent to what we would call prayer. So it's how to pray for ourselves, they're psalms of protest. Um, A protest psalm is an expression of hurt and plea for help. And I'm looking at Psalms 42 and 43, which um, look as if either they were originally written together uh, and they've been divided into two. Or maybe Psalm 42 was written first and then then Psalm 43 was written to go with it. But they certainly relate with each other because you'll see that in 42, 42 verse 5 and 42 verse 11 and 43 verse 5 are all more or less the same. They are the, the kind of refrain in the psalm that holds the two psalms together. And you see also that Psalm 43 doesn't have an introduction, uh, whereas all the psalms in this part of the Psalter otherwise do have introductions. So what do you get uh, in a psalm of lament or a psalm of protest, a prayer psalm? And this list is more or less, it's the kind of list of the features of one of these psalms that you'd find in Gunkel or in Westamun or one of those guys. Um, and we'll see uh, how they appear in this particular psalm. Um, you're going to get, presumably, uh, an invocation of God. You're going to get somebody calling on God. Um, and so you get that in 42, at the beginning of 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O oh God. Um, the, uh, and at the beginning of 43, vindicate me, O oh God, and defend my cause. Uh, 43.4 has got the slightly strange phrase, "O God, my God, uh, which I ought to explain uh, a little bit. In the Psalter as a whole, uh, you get lots and lots of occurrences of the name of God, Yahweh. But um, pretty consistently, in the English translations, the name of God, Yahweh, is replaced uh, by the ordinary word, Lord, But it's put in four capital letters. So you can tell it's the word Yahweh that's there. And in fact there is an example in 42 verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. Uh, It's um, what the Hebrews got there is. By day Yahweh commands his steadfast love. And you can tell when the English translations are doing that. Because they give you the word Lord in all capital letters. Uh, In Psalms 1 to 41, there are quite a lot of occurrences of the name Yahweh, therefore, of the word Lord. But in Psalm 42 through to Psalm 83, there are very, very few of them. And it looks as if um, either the psalmists who wrote these psalms didn't want to use the word Yahweh, or somebody um, edited their psalms in order to remove most of the occurrences of the name Yahweh. Uh, And they perhaps did that for the same kind of reasons as eventually the Jewish community Uh, stopped saying the name Yahweh um, and replaced it by the word Lord. That is, it might be that they were afraid of taking Yahweh's name in vain and thought it was best therefore not to take it at all. Um, Or it might be that they didn't want to give the impression that Yahweh was just a kind of weird local tribal God uh, of the Israelites. They wanted to make clear that God was the Lord of the whole world. And they thought that if you put the word Lord in, um, then it will make clearer that this isn't just a little local tin pot God. But whatever is the reason? Um, through 42 to 80, through Psalms 42 to 83, uh, you get virtually no occurrences, very few occurrences of the name Yahweh. And you can see in some contexts where it would be natural to have the name Yahweh. And in 43.4, that's an example. In any other part of this Psalter, at the end of 43.4, you would say, Yahweh my God. Um, but in this Elohistic Psalter, that's the Psalter that uses the, name, the ordinary word for God, the word Elohim. Um, the the name of God, Yahweh, gets replaced by that word Elohim, that word God. So you can imagine that it would be usual at the end of 43.4 to invoke God as Yahweh, my God, but here instead it's God, my God. In invocation, you expect to get God called on, and usually in the Psalms you're going to get God called on by name, because God has given this precious thing to Israel of making known his name to them, so that they can call on him by name. There's a close relationship between Israel and God that makes calling on God by name something possible for them. Then what you quite often get in a psalm is some recollection of what God has done in the past. And you've seen that in 22 and in 89 in two different words, in two different ways. 22, uh, some people noticed, kept switching between talking about how things are in the present and how they've been in the past. 89 spends most of its time talking about what God said in the past and what God's done in the past. And then uh, it reaches a point where it says, So why in hell is it not like that now? Uh, Which obviously is a very offensive way to speak to God. Uh, But apparently it's okay, because God put that psalm in his book. um, And it's it's okay with God that um, you should... Well, not actually those words I just used, which obviously (laughs) I shall now get struck dead for uttering. Um, but, But the notion that you should speak straight to God look, you've let us down. You don't have to say, it looks as if you let us down, or I feel as if you, you, uh, you've let us down. You say, oh, you've let us down. Because the um, Israelites assume, if you like, to put it in our terms, that the relationship between us and God is the relationship of children to a father. And if you're a good father, then your children can talk to you like that. Um, and they've, you've got the kind of confidence with your father to be able to address your father in that kind of way. Uh, And the recollecting of what God has done in the past is an important part of the psalm. It fits with that thing we were saying just now about narrative, about the the spirituality of the psalms being linear. Um, Because the fact that God has acted that way in the past is a reason why you ought to be able to talk to God about why things are different now and about what God is going to do in the future. So it's uh, to be able to recollect what God has done in the past is a hopeful thing, though it's also a painful thing, precisely because things now are not like that. So in Psalm 42, um, verse 4 talks about, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving a multitude-keeping festival. I can't do that now because I'm stuck somewhere apart from Jerusalem. I'm not able to get to the temple. And I know in a sense that I'm in the presence of God here because otherwise it wouldn't be, make sense to pray. But in another sense, I don't, I'm not in the presence of God in the same way as I would be if I was able to join with people in worship in Jerusalem. So I remember how things were. Um, but, uh, and, and that's something that's both painful for me and... Um, and yet hopeful for me, because maybe things could be that way again. Recollection of God's deeds in the past, which is both painful and hopeful. And then there's the, then there's the element of lament, which as I said is uh, the element that has given the name, given the name to the, these psalms that are often used uh, as psalms of lament. In which you say, uh, so this is how awful it is at the moment. And Westerman has pointed out how you get uh, expressions of that which are in terms of I or we, and in terms of they, and in terms of you. So, uh, my soul thirsts for God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food. And you get they expressions. People say to me continually, where is your God? But most painfully are the you expressions. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? It's extraordinary in a way that Psalm 22 starts the way it does. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, That psalm gets straight to the business immediately. Um, in, In Psalm 42 you could say, It kind of works to it more gradually. It talks about how I feel, talks about what other people do, talks about the fact that you um, have forsaken me. You won't necessarily get all those in every protest psalm, but it's worth looking for the way in which the psalm talks about I or we, talks about they, um, but also talks about you. Fourth element in this list is a confession of trust. The The conversation at the beginning of Psalm 22 um, illustrates that rather neatly, uh, I think. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. I am a worm and not human, yet it was you who took me from the womb. There's a a, a kind of conversation going on between protest um, and recollection trust in Psalm 22. You can see the encouragement... A similar conversation, no, a different conversation, um, with um, in Psalm 42, because it's a conversation that goes on inside the person. Why are you cast down, on my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my help and my God. Uh, There's uh, the self is talking to the self in Psalm 42. There's a conversation going on, uh, a kind of wrestling for trust. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Says Psalm 43. It's often the case in these psalms then. There's some way in which the psalmist says. Despite how tough things are. Despite the fact that you have abandoned me. um, I'm carrying on trusting you. There's the plea. Which is what we would actually think of as the prayer. That is the plea is when you're actually asking for something. Something. When we think about prayer, we think maybe mostly in terms of asking for something. Um, in the Psalms, the asking for something is one part of the, of the psalm, but, and not the, most dominant, not, not the most dominant part. And there's thus an interesting contrast, I think, between the dynamics that often characterize our prayers and the dynamics that characterize the psalms' prayers. That is, we don't spend a long time uh, telling God how things are. Perhaps because we assume that God knows. But we do spend a lot, a lot of time telling God what to do. Apparently because we don't think that God can work out what to do. Uh, whereas the, the, the logic in the Psalms, if anything, is the other way around. The, the Psalms have great confidence in God's ability to work out what to do. They don't have confidence in God's, in God's willingness immediately to do it. And so what you need to do is to motivate God to take some action. After all, there are lots of other things in the world that God could be focusing on. There's lots of reasons why God should be doing different things. God often doesn't intervene. God isn't intervening all the time. Um, Just um, the other night, Kathleen and I were watching a um, documentary uh, about uh, a uh, a guy who'd been on death row uh, in Texas for ten years and was about to be executed. Uh, And the documentary started off with uh, an interview by the director of um, the chaplain, who was um, ministering to this guy, uh, and the, and the uh, director um, asked the chaplain, "How could God let this ha- this happen? Why didn't God stop this execution?" Because neither the director nor the chaplain believed in capital punishment. Why didn't God stop it? Well, if God if God intervened, or if God did that, if God intervened every time somebody was going to be executed. If God intervened every time I do something stupid on the freeway, then I'd do even more stupid things on the freeway than I do. God doesn't, God doesn't intervene all the time. It would be a different kind of world then. It wouldn't be a real world. But God does intervene sometimes. Uh, and, so, and, and of course, as we uh, rejoice in the days after Easter still, we rejoice in an occasion when God intervened in the most spectacular of ways. Uh, in the Psalms, and when you pray, you're asking God to make this one of the times when you intervene, when he intervenes. Uh, and so, uh, in, the, in spending a lot of time describing what the situation is and how awful it is, you're seeking to get God to agree that this is a moment when he would be proper to intervene. But when, if, you can get, if you can get that, if you can get agreement from God that, that action would be appropriate, then you don't really need to tell God in detail what to do is the assumption in the Psalms. Uh, and so there are three things that you ask for, characteristically. Again, you won't necessarily get all of them every time, but three things that recur. But very briefly, just a line or two, compared with the amount of space given to the um, lament. They want God to listen. They want God to save. And they want God to punish. They want God to listen to their prayer. They, got, they want God to act and deliver from the... Um, situation that is oppressive and in connection with that they want God to put down the people who are causing the oppression. A plea and just in a verse or two characteristically. Quite often towards the end of a psalm there, oh, let me see if we can see it here. Um, nicely put, there's no prayer interestingly I think In Psalm 42 as a whole, the psalmist never prays for anything. Uh, It's only in Psalm 43 that you get some actual prayer, in our sense, some plea. Maybe that's why somebody wrote Psalm 43. They said, it's a very nice psalm, but there's no prayer in it. Come on, let's write another verse so we've got some prayer in it. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I'll go to the altar of God. Uh, and so on. But that's that's the content of the plea in Psalms forty two and forty three: "Is send out your light and your truth, and let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill, into your dwelling." I love that picture of God's light and truth being kind of like angels that God sends out. Here's here's light with a big L, and here's truth with a big T, and God sends them out, and they put their arms around you, and you take you to the temple. That's what um, the psalmist is asking for. It's almost as good as the line in Psalm twenty three. Um, the the end of Psalm 23 surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh my whole life long because there uh, the Hebrew word that's translated follow is is the Hebrew word that usually means pursue or persecute surely goodness and mercy shall chase me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh my whole life long isn't that neat a neat idea that God's mercy and truth are chasing you. So the plea. Um, quite often in a psalm you'll get a vow of praise. A promise of praise. When you've acted I'll come back and glorify your name. It'll be for your As we pray in our prayers. It'll be for your glory. Um, for you to, to answer my prayer. Hope in God for I shall again praise him. My helper my God. It says, uh, It keeps saying in the chorus here. Then I'll be able to go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I'll praise you with the harp, O God my God, of our praise. Sometimes in a psalm you'll get a transition, quite often, you'll get some kind of transition in a psalm uh, to praise that implies that the prayer has been answered. And several of you in your postings noted how sharp is the transition in Psalm 22, towards praise at the end, and wondered what had happened. Is there a kind of gap uh, between the prayer and the praise? Um, and somebody noted the theory that, um, or the possibility, that uh, that somebody might say the prayer part and then come back another day um, and, uh, and write and say the praise part. Uh, I don't think that theory works so well because... When you, when you are in a position where God has answered your prayer and you come back, what you do is then praise, uh, say, sing a thanksgiving psalm, a testimony psalm of the kind that we'll look at uh, next week or the week after. Uh, what you need to t- make allowance for with a psalm like Psalm 22 um, is this. The way, I, the way I think of it is that when the Israelites think about prayer being answered, they think about there, there are two stages to prayer being answered. There's, uh, there's God hearing your prayer and saying, yes, I'm going to answer it. And then there's God actually doing something about it and acting. Uh, in the second half this evening, we will um, look at the story of Hannah. But the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 uh, illustrates the dynamic of that very well. Um, and I'll glance at that bit just now because I think it's such a neat illustration of it. Uh, Hannah comes and prays um, and... Uh, eventually, uh, Eli tells her uh, that um, she can go in peace. The God of Israel, grant the petition you've made to him. And she goes home, and her countenance was sad no longer. Now, she, the reason why she was sad is she couldn't have a baby. She's no more pregnant than she was when, when she went to the temple. But her face has changed. Because God has answered her prayer. At, in the sense of heard her prayer. Um, and um, uh, then subsequently they go home and they make love and she gets pregnant and she has a baby and she comes back in due course to the temple to give praise to God for answering her prayer for the stage two of the answer but the story illustrates very clearly how there are these two stages the stage one is you know God has heard your prayer and he's going to do something about it the stage two is God actually doing it now I think that's the um, clue to understanding the dynamic of a psalm like psalm 22 When when it talks at the end about God having heard and God having answered the prayer and God having virtually delivered, it doesn't mean the situation is any different from when you started off the prayer. Um, It does mean that you know that God has heard the prayer and that stage one of the the answer to the prayer uh, has come. And that's what explains the transition in the case of that particular psalm. And you can see something similar... I've mentioned two psalms there on the sheet. Okay, um, quick question. Yep. How, how, how would uh, one know uh, that the stage one of prayer making is right. coming stage two? Has come? The, the, how would one know the stage one has come? Well, how would one you know uh, the transition between stage one and two, stage one and two, normally you kind of expect stage two would be the retroactive answer for stage one? Uh, I'm not sure I've got you, but let me explain it a bit more and see if see if see if explain see if it see if, it, um, see if it, I explain it more clearly. Um, when when you said the first part of the psalm, uh, or in the process of praying, sometimes it can be the case that simply the process of praying means that you know you've given the thing over to God and you have a sense that God has heard your prayer. You know God has heard your prayer. Or sometimes it can be the case that that somebody gives you an answer to the prayer, as happened with Hannah, and as we're going to see happens in Psalm 12. And so you can know that you've received stage one. Uh, you then go home, and maybe nothing happens tomorrow, today, tomorrow, the next day, in which case you come back and pray again. Um, and uh, but, it, but in due course, the action of God happens in a way that uh, fulfills the Promise that was expressed in what made you reckon that God had heard your prayer in the first place, and that, so then you're in a position to to pray a thanksgiving prayer because a thanksgiving prayer presupposes that you've actually that you've received stage two and not just stage one. Does that does that help? No. Thus, it's a little confusing. The last, bit's a little confusing. The, last bit, the first two uh, examples were very clear. Well. Um, Here's Psalm 30. I will extol you, Yahweh, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. Yahweh, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. Um, Now, this is a guy who has been in the kind of position that Psalm 22 has presupposed, uh, but has not merely had a sense that God has heard his prayer. Or had somebody in a prophet saying to him, the Lord, or a priest saying to him, the Lord has heard your prayer. He's actually had the situation resolved and is therefore in a position to say, um, you have healed me, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those has gone down to the pit.